Good morning, everybody. How are you today? Uh, my name is Marshall. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. If you're new, we're really glad that you're with us. And uh, on Super Bowl Sunday, no less. Uh, every Super Bowl Sunday, I'm reminded of one of my favorite uh, scenes from The Simpsons, which when I grew up, a preacher would never talk about The Simpsons. But guess what? Like, we're postmodern. We're cool. Um, so uh, uh, it was uh, Reverend Lovejoy. He's up at the pulpit, and there's one person in the front row of the pew, and he says, I'm glad one person could resist the lure of the big game. And the guy stands up and runs out, oh, my gosh, I forgot about the game. Um, so we always have this, like, this is the test. This is the test week to see who are the true faithful. <laughs> Gross. <laughs> Sorry. Um, uh, if, you, if you're at home streaming online, we're really glad that you're joining us. Hopefully you're making like a seven-layer dip and uh, uh, that you can enjoy a little bit later. Um, this morning, we are hitting sort of the home stretch of a sermon series that we have been in uh, for the last several weeks that we've been calling Foundations of Prayer. Through the winter, we have been spending uh, our sermon series examining what I think is the most important practice in the Christian life for growing as a follower of Jesus, which is prayer. And so uh, over the last several weeks, we've explored lots of different ways to pray, lots of um, important sort of aspects of prayer to be exploring. And so, question, does anyone remember? what we talked about last Sunday morning. <laughs> oh uh, friendship with God in prayer. That's right. Good memory, everybody. The aim of growing in prayer is that we would all develop a closer walk with the Lord as his friend, that we are all invited into this relationship with God through sort of abiding is what John chapter 15 says. Now, does anybody remember what the two enemies of our intimacy with God were? Yes, great job. Sin and distraction. Now, I have good news. In a few weeks' time, when Lent hits, we are going to spend the entire Lent se season in a series on sin. You're welcome. I know exactly what you're all excited to learn about. But this morning, I want to build on what we talked about so briefly last week about the power of distraction to keep us from growing in prayer and how what we give our attention to forms who we are becoming. It's a very simple message that I have this morning. And the big idea is this. You will become like whatever it is that you behold. There is formational power in the things that we give our attention to. A number of years ago, my wife walked in on me sitting in my living room with my earbuds in, listening to a podcast on my phone, while on the table in front of me, my iPad was playing the Timbers game, and I was playing video games on the TV. And she was horrified, and I don't, didn't understand why. Apparently, she didn't know that this is who I am. This is the man that she married at my truest heart level. And I tell you this story so that you'd all be impressed with how well I multitask. Um, now, I would love to say that her horror and, frankly, her shaming of me in that moment was a learning experience. But, of course, I didn't change after that. Um, in the years that followed, some version of that moment has been an ongoing struggle in my life. I suffer from a chronic condition called FOMO, the fear of missing out, and it is really, really strong in me. The best description I can think of to describe sort of my personality is, I want to do all the things all the time simultaneously. 
Like, I am fidgety and easily bored. I love content, which means that I'm growing, I'm living in the best era in world history. All day long, I want to read the articles, I want to listen to the podcasts, I want to stream the TV shows, I want to go to the new restaurant, I want to try the new coffee, I want to see the new movie, and I want to do all of those things at the same time. And and when it comes to my walk with Jesus, I want to study the Bible and be immersed in his presence. I want to slowly contemplate the word of God and let it form me. But I also want to watch all the Bible project videos and I want to listen to all of the companion podcasts and I want to go down the YouTube rabbit hole. And this twitchiness is increasing, it increasingly exists in us mostly by design. The world that we live in has conspired against us and has been designed to give us maximal hits to pleasure centers and to hold our attention captive for as long as possible. And here's the irony. In living in sort of this attention economy, our attention has gotten smaller and smaller and smaller. A lot of study over the last several years has gone into the impact of the attention economy on the human brain. Following that first moment of shame where my wife caught me playing video games, listening to a podcast and watching a Timbers game all at the same time, um, I picked up Nicholas Carr's book, The Shallows. Has anybody read The Shallows from 2010? Um, This is what he writes. He says, what the net seems to be doing is chipping away at my capacity for concentration and contemplation. Whether I'm online or not, my mind now expects to take in information the way the net distributes it in a swiftly moving stream of particles. Once I was a scuba diver in the sea of words. Now I zip along the surface like a guy on a jet ski. Now this book was written in 2010, as you might have guessed by his use of the phrase, the net. In the 12 years since he wrote this, things have not gotten better And he's speaking to an experience that nearly all of us can relate to on some level. Our ability to give attention to something for extended periods of time has decreased at a frightening rate. Where I could at one time read, you know, entire chapters and chapters of a book for a few hours on end and feel completely immersed in a story, I now find myself struggling to read through a single long-form article. My attention is now at, the, at a three-point blog post, and even then, I might just skim it looking for the bold words. Where I could at one time sit with rapt attention in a movie theater for an entire film, I now find myself instinctively reaching for my pocket to touch my phone, and the shame of other moviegoers being the only thing restra- restraining me from checking Instagram. People today prefer audiobooks over uh, paper books, by and large. And most of the time, people listen at one and a half speed. Like we can't, like we need to listen faster and faster. We're frenetic. So just recently, in the last few weeks, Johan Hari came out with a book called Stolen Focus. And he, came, he was making the same case that so many other researchers have been making before. Why we can't pay attention to anything and why it's so important that we learn how to think Again, you see, we all feel our minds being lured in a thousand directions much of the time, and this luring is frightening to me. It makes me aware of the fact that I am not as in control of my own mind as I would like to think. And so this week, interviewing Johan Hari, New York Times opinion writer Ezra Klein wrote this. He said, life is the sum total of what we pay attention to. That's it. 
Our attention is an industry, and under all of this pressure, it changes. And so we change how we pay attention, what we pay attention to, how much attention we have to give. This absolute core facility of our life, the window through which we peer out at the world and we let it be bought and sold and scolded and wasted, and then we blame ourselves. I've been feeling a lot older this year, something about kids and the pandemic and how gray my hair is getting, and it's made me think not so much about, the t- about time as about attention. I don't think time is the right way to measure what if, whatever it is I have left. Attention is. I only have so much attention left to give, and it's how I use that attention that will decide what I make of that time. But it really feels day to day like I'm swimming upstream on that because before I can use my attention, I have to stop all these other corporations and distractions. And to be fair, sometimes my own weaker, worse impulses from using it first. Life is the sum total of what we pay attention to. And you see, it's not just the frivolous that is competing for our eyeballs. Like, of course, we all know, we can recognize the things that waste our time that we end up giving ourselves to, you know, too mindlessly, like binge-watching TV or endless doom-scrolling on social media or just the background noise of cable news that's twisting our brains up. But it's even the good things that can negatively impact our attention. Constant availability to our work at home through email. Having our jobs actually in our house as we're working from home. Feeling like we're always connected. A million activities that the kids need to go to. Even over-busying ourselves with church activities. Our lives are the sum total of what we give our attention to. And so how is our, our attention impacting our formation? How is our soul being shaped by what we look at and listen to? How is all of this distraction, what is it doing to our ability to connect with God in prayer? See, I think that we come to church Sunday after Sunday and we leave feeling inspired to go and connect with God more for ourselves on our own. You know, we, we come to church doing this prayer series and we start week one and we're like, I do want to give God my mornings. I'm going to set my coffee maker up. I'm going to be ready to open my Bible first thing in the morning. Or I want to learn how to grow in deeper intercession, partnering with God to see the world transform through prayer. I want to experience God's peace through contemplative prayer like Wes taught about. I want to surrender my whole life to God like Liz preached about. A friendship with God is what my soul aches for. I long to grow in that. And then we find ourselves numb again in front of a screen mere hours later, distracted by a thousand lesser things. Following a Sunday morning, we might set ourselves to meet with God in the mornings and find ourselves paying attention to him at the moment that it starts, struggling to sit in quiet for even a few minutes because our brains have been rewired to have this addiction to small dopamine hits all throughout our day. And we can, we can find it hard to talk with God for more than even just a few sentences. I'm convinced that distraction is the great enemy to our abiding friendship with God today. A few years ago, one of my favorite preachers, John Tyson, gave a framework for this based out of Psalm 73 for how distraction impacts our, spiritual, our lives at a spiritual level. He says that distraction leads to disillusionment. And he he lists it out as a cycle. And you know that it's made by a preacher because every step begins with the same letter. The first step is distraction. That whenever you set your heart to seek God, inevitably you will be hit with some onslaught of distractions. 
The world is too stimulated to leave you peacefully to commune with God by yourself. And these distractions, they come in two primary modes. The first is through the sensational. Our attention economy functions by dialing everything up to 11. Every day we are shouted at by media that everything is a crisis all of the time. You are, and if you are not part of the solution, you are part of the problem. So we are pitched back and forth, to and fro, by these waves in the wind of 24-7 news cycles and social media and celebrity gossip, all demanding our attention every moment and that we have an opinion on every issue that arises in our country. Anybody else feel exhausted by the need to pay attention and have an opinion on everything? The second mode of distraction comes in the form of desire. It's a distraction that plays to the things that we long for in our hearts, uh, that come from comparing ourselves to others or envying what belongs to someone else. It comes in the form of lust. It comes in the form of ambition, you know, feeling like you need to reach some kind of ultimate goal. It comes in the form of HGTV and home improvement programs. It comes in the form of fashion or an obsession with fitness. These distractions then lead us to the second thing, which is distortion. When we get our eyes off of God, and on to other things, our vision for how things work gets twisted and distorted. So it starts to seem to us kind of like, you know, maybe other people are, are fine without God. Maybe the stuff that God calls sin, maybe it's just really not that big of a deal. And maybe that's just kind of old-timey way of thinking. Is the cost of discipleship really even worth it anymore? And this is how we are sort of deformed by distraction. Our vision and values get twisted and, and into sort of a worldly way of perceiving the things around us. We are increasingly conformed to whatever we give our attention to. Here's a case in point. I don't care how deeply committed you are to your particular political worldview is, whatever side of the aisle it may be. I, I, if, if you switched your media intake and you began to binge on whatever source takes the opposite framework of what you feel like today, and you did that for an entire year, I guarantee you that some of your values would change in 12 months' time. That's how we work. Whatever we pay attention to, whatever we take in, it begins to shape who we become. Romans chapter 12, verse 2, calls us to not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but rather to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And when we get our eyes off God, we begin to move in the opposite direction from him. Our vision is distorted, and the distorted vision then leads to the third thing, which is discouragement. Distorted vision and values discourages us from actually following the way of Jesus. The way of Jesus just doesn't really feel like it's worth it any longer. Like, why bother? Does God really even care? It seems like what everyone else is doing is more fun or fulfilling anyway. And then that discouragement leads us to the fourth thing, which is disobedience. When you're in a place where you're feeling full and encouraged and you have faith and you're connected to the heart of God, you're not really tempted to blow up your life with sin. But it's when you are feeling sort of the weight of discouragement that sin comes in and you no longer just have the energy to resist, succumbing to sexual temptation, wasteful or even recklessly blowing your money, overindulgence in food or alcohol, watching things that you know a Christian has no business setting before their eyes. And this disobedience leads us to the last thing, which is disillusionment. 
the cycle leads to a, a troubled spirit. It drains us of our sense of peace with God. We feel distant from him and may even lose a sense of purpose in God's kingdom. When we get our eyes off God and off the calling that God has placed on our lives, it causes us to feel this disillusionment. And then these five Ds become a cycle. Because when you are in the midst of disillusionment, where you feel like that lack of peace and that troubled spirit, you'll go to anything to help you sort of ease the pain. And so what do you reach for? Distraction. Again, something to numb the feelings. And no one in this room is immune to this. And I know that because this is the stuff that happens in me. And I'm sure that it happens in others as well. But the good news is that God has something that is better for us than just following this cycle for the rest of our lives. You can leave this cycle behind. Jesus says that that his way is a way of freedom. And it starts with a reorientation of our attention This week, I was meeting with my friend Carolyn, and we were talking about spiritual formation and and just got me thinking about one of my favorite books, The Holy Longing by Ronald Rollheiser. And this is what he writes. He says, narcissism accounts for the heart, uh, sorry, narcissism accounts for our heartaches, pragmatism for our headaches, and restlessness for our insomnia. And constancy of all three together account for the fact that we are so habitually self-absorbed by heartaches, headaches, and greed for experience that we rarely find the time and space to be in touch with the deeper movements inside of us and around us. We, for every kind of reason, good and bad, are distracting ourselves into spiritual oblivion. It is not that we have anything against God, depth, and spirit. We would like these. It is just that we are habitually too preoccupied to have any of these show up on our radar screens. We are more busy than bad, more distracted than non-spiritual, and more interested in the movie theater, the Super Bowl, and the shopping mall, and the fantasy life they produce in us than we are in church. Pathological busyness, distraction, and restlessness are major blocks today within our spiritual lives. If we want to break the cycle of disillusionment in our lives, it begins by learning to pay attention to what is happening on the interior, both the things that are disturbed within us, and then, of course, looking beyond us to God himself. In Ephesians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul writes, Look carefully, then, how you walk not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Look carefully at how you walk. Or again, in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1, we must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. Both of these verses point to the fact that we can so easily drift from the wisdom and into foolishness. You see, for, for most people, it's not a conscious apostasy that we are at risk of. It is a mindless drift. And this is what distraction does to us. It lulls us into a sense of spiritual slumber. Like, and then like you're playing in the ocean, you know, just splashing around in the waves, not paying attention to where you're at or what you're oriented to, and you find yourself very slowly being drawn down shore uh, by, by the tide. And you look up and suddenly you're a mile away from where you began. What you give your attention to determines who you become. 
I mean, like, this is one of those classic cliche sort of uh, coach moments, right? Josh MacArthur's not here. He's on sabbatical, but he's a, a, a basketball coach. And, you know, these are the kind of things that he would say that sh uh, show me your friends, I'll show you your future. You know, it's like whatever you're oriented to or whatever you're surrounded and influenced by, that is what you're going to live into. What you give your attention to determines who you become. And this principle is all over the Bible. You become like whatever it is that you behold. And we are invited by scripture to rather feast our minds on the goodness of God. In Psalm 17, verse 15, we read, As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. And when I awake, I will be satisfied by your likeness. This was one of the first scriptures that I ever learned how to meditate on. I spent three days just sort of like walking around, working, riding my bike, everywhere that I went, just chewing on this verse. As for me, I will behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I will be satisfied with your likeness. You see, what he is saying is that I will, I will actively choose to feast my eyes on the goodness of God. I will look at him. I will behold his face. And that in beholding his face, that is where I will experience what my soul is longing for. Rather than disillusionment, I will receive satisfaction, wholeness, health, fulfillment, everything that I need. Or consider 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Now the, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of God, are being transformed into his same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. This text is actually pointing us back to the story of Moses in the book of Exodus, where Moses is up on Mount Sinai meeting with God, and God is telling him, giving him commands to share with the people of Israel. And when he comes back down the mountain, people can't look at him because his face is literally glowing. It's radiating the glory of God that he was just beholding. And so they couldn't handle it, so they, they put a veil over his face to dim the glory that was shining off of him from his time spent looking at God's glory. Paul here in 2 Corinthians 3 says that we Christians have like an unveiled face and that we are beholding God's glory and that we are becoming radiant like Moses was, that we will be transformed into the same image, the same character, the same nature, the same desires, the same beauty, everything that God holds in himself. As we look at him, we will be transformed to be like him from glory to glory to glory. You see, in our church, there are four things that we are really aiming at that we want to see take place here in our small community. Um, and these are the things that we want to see happen in the lives of everyone who considers Vancouver Vineyard to be their home. Presence, formation, community, and mission. We want you to experience the tangible presence of God through worship and prayer, coming to things like encounter and experiencing him. We want you to experience ongoing transformation as we learn to live the way of Jesus. We want you to find belonging and encouragement as a part of a loving community. And we want you to find purpose in, God's, in joining God in his reconciliation, reconcili, <laughs> reconciling work in the world, what we call mission. And so the second thing in that list, formation, it begins right here. If you want to be formed into the likeness of Jesus, it becomes, or it, it begins by beholding him, feasting on scripture, walking with him in prayer, and guarding your heart and mind from the images from the world that want to pollute you. And then in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, we read, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. 
But we know this, that when he appears, we will be like him because we shall see him as he is. That ultimately one day when Jesus returns and to make all things new, to, to bring heaven and earth together in this cosmic glorious sort of finale, we, we know that when we see him, we will be caught up and we will be transformed to be like him physically, emotionally, spiritually, and in every way we will be transformed into the image of Jesus. How? By seeing him. When we behold him, we will become like him. And this is why the Bible talks so much about the importance of our eyes, the power of what happens when we look at things. What we behold determines who we become. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says, The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Jesus gives a stark warning. If you let darkness in through your eyes, it begins to fill your whole being with that darkness. But by contrast, in, in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul writes this. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and the incomparably great power for us who believe. Jesus warns, if you fill your eye with darkness, darkness will take up residence on the inside of you. Paul, by contrast, says, I am praying that the eyes of your understanding would be enlightened, that you would feast your eyes on the, the light of the glory of God and the face of Jesus Christ. And if you do that, then you will experience the hope of your calling. You will see the glorious inheritance of God's holy people who are all around you, and you will be filled with the immeasurably great power that is towards us who believe. Paul says, don't be filled with darkness. No, I want you to be filled, filled with the light of God. He says that he's praying that we might see the truth and therefore live into it. That we might pay attention to the truest thing about us Christians and live into it. To not be distracted because there is glory for us. Finally, in Psalm 27 verse 4, David writes this poem. He says, one thing have I asked of the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire or to meditate in his temple. Only one thing do I desire, that I might feast my eyes on the beauty of God, that I might dwell in his presence. And when we read this in our early morning quiet time with our cup of coffee, kids are still asleep, a little bit of worship music in the background, sun is rising through, through the window in this moment of glory, and we say, oh, yes, that's what I want too. One thing have I desire, to gaze on your beauty, to be in your house, Lord. And then, and then we snap back to reality. I want to gaze on the glory of God in his heavenly house. And then the baby wakes up and you're back to reality. Or then someone honks at you in traffic, or your lunch break ends and you're back to work, or a million other things that crowd in, and suddenly what felt awesome feels sort of impossible. And when, and when we do have the time and the space to feast on God's beauty, we discover that, frankly, it's an acquired taste, right? We think to ourselves, I want to enjoy this thing, but I don't know how to enjoy it. Enjoy it. Most of us haven't developed a mature palate to enjoy God. At my house, we eat really well. 
Like, we like good food and drink and coffee and every... We spend too much money on it, but, I mean, what, what else are you going to do with this life that you're given, right? But night after night on the dinner table, as we, as we have a, a feast of smoked meats and creamy, cheesy sides and goodness and, like, crisp but, but you know, steamed vegetables, the flavor just pops off. And, of course, it's all organic and blah, blah, blah. Um, garlic on everything, and, we're, and we put it before our children, and we say, behold the banquet that we have laid before you. Feast, my son, and see how good the Lord is to bless you. And they look at it, and they say, how many bites do I have to take? I want peanut butter and jelly. I want mac and cheese. And we say, oh, but there's good news. Look, your mother baked mac and cheese with gouda and all kinds of delicious cheeses. It's so delicious. Spiral noodles. Isn't it amazing? They say, no, from the box. I want it from the box. Good morning, Lewis and Soren. They're at home, sick right now. Good to see you guys. This, this, my friends, is frankly what we are so often like spiritually, pushing aside the pleasures of being with God and beholding his glory so that we can indulge in the cheaper, easier pleasures of the world. It's easier. It's more comfortable. But in the end, it's like cotton candy. It's momentarily sweet and instantaneously dissolves in your mouth, leaving you feeling emptier than when you took the bite. In The Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis writes this. He says, it, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. So what has captured your attention and how is it shaping you? What are the distractions that as you give yourself to them, they are leaving you feeling numb to the things of God? There's a book that I love. I read it when I was like 13 years old and then I picked it up again back in 2018 and I read it almost every year since. Um, it's by David Wilkerson and it's called The Cross and the Switchblade. Has anybody read The Cross and the Switchblade? Everybody over 40 got it, okay. Um, <laughs> um, it was written in 1962 and, um, and this guy Wilkerson, it's a story of his life and how through his small act of obedience, a miniature revival took place among the gang members in New York City in the late 1950s. I cannot recommend it highly enough. It is better than you remember. Go reread it, even if you've read it before. Now, the book opens with Wilkerson being a small-town pastor who loves Jesus and loves God's people and has a nice life with a simple routine. He's a good pastor, and he is doing good work. And every night, he would unwind uh, from his work as a pastor by watching a couple hours of TV, mostly the news before going to bed, something that many of us do just the same way. And one night, God started to tap him on the shoulder and said, I want you to give me your evening hours. Now, this is important because it is easy for us to think about, like, especially even as a pastor, God, I got up super early. I was with you at 4.30 this morning. God, I did your work all day. I've had a million conversations with people. I've prayed over people. I fasted today. This is my time. I gave you the rest of the day already. This is my time. And God said, I want you to start giving me your evenings as well. 
And so Wilkerson somewhat reluctantly obeyed, and instead of turning on the TV, he would pray for two hours each night before bed. And this started for him very hard and boring. But slowly, God began to transform Wilkerson and give, gave him attention for the right things. And it was during this season that he picked up Life magazine, and he read an article about the situation of these gang members, these young teenage gang members in New York City, the horrific sin that was taking place, the violence and the evil, um, and, and his heart was really gripped for these street kids. And so he began to bring to the Lord in prayer. And the more that he prayed, the more that he was compelled that he needed to be the one to go to New York. Now, Wilkerson had a young family. He had a wife and like a baby, and he was living in a small town. And suddenly he finds himself saying, I need to move to New York, not having any contacts there or anything, living off very little money. And he took the very little that he had. He packed up his wife and kid, and they drove to New York without any knowing where they were even going to end up staying. And long story short, uh, through this act of faith, Miracle after miracle took place and because God loved these gang members so much and a revival happened. And the most infamous gang member in New York City at the time, Nicky Cruz, gives his life to Jesus, becomes a radical follower of Jesus, and ends up becoming a, a pastor and a leader. And then Wilkerson, through this journey, he goes on to start an organization called Teen Challenge, which to date has served thousands upon thousands of people, bringing them out of drugs, a drug addiction, and into a new life with Jesus. Thousands of people have been impacted. And th- here's the thing that's important, my friends, is that this organization and all of that revival didn't start with a charismatic leader with a compelling vision. It started with a simple small-town pastor turning off his TV It started with him walking away from a life of empty distraction and doing just the minimum. And God used it to transform thousands and thousands of lives. Where is your attention going? And how is it shaping you? How are you becoming like whatever it is that you find yourself beholding? Jesus is inviting you to shift your attention back to him and discover that he alone has what it is that you are looking for. If we want to experience all the things we've been talking about for the last several weeks, if we want to experience mornings with Jesus, if we want to experience power in intercession, if we want to experience the peace of God in contemplative prayer, the freedom that comes through surrender, or the intimacy of friendship with God, it begins right here. What are you giving your attention to. And when, it, and when we see that the distraction leads to disillusionment, we can break that cycle and let our attention go to Jesus and fill us with satisfaction, as the psalmist says. Amen?